Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 100. Yes, you heard that right. Not counting our bonus episodes, mini sessions, or next up episodes, this is our 100th installment of Archonnect Sessions, a podcast that we started two and a half years ago back in October of 2014. Joining us this week as we celebrate this milestone is a true master of our field, Stephen Hall. We talk about his childhood growing up near Seattle, his early career struggles, inspirations, China, globalism, his friendship with Zaha, the Pritzker Prize, and the Stephen Myron Hall Foundation. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed talking with him. We're hoping to kind of talk with you a little bit about just kind of your life arc, starting out with growing up in Washington. Well, starting out with being born, right? Yes. Well, we don't necessarily have to go back. start that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it counts, no? I mean, I was born in Bremerton, Washington, so I'm a West Coast person, not a New Yorker. It's a town of 30,000 people with no architects, you know, I mean, it kind of... And I was making since I was a child, like making things, making with my brother, making tree houses and painting. I was painting with oils when I was six years old. So, I mean, I think I've always wanted to be an architect, like from sort of birth. And I grew up in Pacific Northwest, you know, which is this kind of isolated section of America, which has, you know, kind of mythological creatures like the Bigfoot. <laughs> You probably don't know about that. But oh, anyway. yeah. No, oh, yeah. I, I grew oh, up yeah. in Victoria, so I'm kind of a Northwestern as well. Different countries. Uh, well, area. it's a different kind of corner of America. And, uh, it you is. Know, they, there's a different culture there, and it's interesting. And I went to the University of Washington. Before I graduated, I studied in Rome for a year in 1970. That changed my life. That was a fantastic educational experience. And then I also went to the Architecture Association in London in 1976, for a year, which was also an amazing. I mean, I wanted to work for Lou Kahn. In fact, I was hired, but he died between the time I was hired and the time he didn't get back to his office. Uh-huh. In 1973, 1974, I was in San Francisco and, you know, became a registered architect and I got accepted to all these graduate schools, Harvard, Yale, and Columbia, and I went back and toured them and decided that's not what I wanted to do. And instead, I wanted to intern for free as a volunteer in Khan Studio, and I was accepted. And the man said, Lou, I'm sure we'll be happy, but he never came back. So this was a kind of lost mm. year for me. And uh, Alvin Boyarsky came through in San Francisco and introduced me to the Architecture Association, saw my portfolio, and invited me to come for free as long as I would be a critic in the undergraduate. And that was the studio of Rem Koolhaas, Elias Angalas, where we discovered Zaha Hadid. So I had a really great experience at the AA because of Alvin Boyarsky, and that was a kind of life-changing thing. And then I tried to return to San Francisco, but it was too provincial, and I came to New York City on an excursion ticket, 1976-77, on New Year's Eve. I only knew one person in New York City, my brother, who's a sculptor and a painter, and I never took the return half of the ticket. I was so excited about the cultural life. There was a lot going on. You know, there was the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies was active. Max Protech had a gallery for architects showing architecture. The city was incredibly cheap. And basically, I found a cold water loft for $250 a month, and I had that for 10 years. I slept on a plywood shelf over the entrance, and no one knew I lived there. That was my studio, but it was also, I mean, that was my office, but it was also where I lived. Went to the YMCA to shower. I mean, I began as a teacher at Columbia University, 1980, teaching first year, and basically didn't have really anything to do. I mean, work-wise, it was a lot of proposals, Bronx Gymnasium Bridge, Bridge of Houses, 
on the Highline, reuse the Highline. You know, we just made projects up in the studio. We didn't have clients. We just made projects, and that was great. It was a, you know, and I, for a living, I was teaching at one time at three places at once, <laughs> which was very exhausting. And I think the breakthrough moment was, well, I had some small projects like the Martha's Vineyard House. Like you ask about the Martha's Vineyard House. That was 1988. I had done some interiors, and uh, I was asked to do a show at, at MoMA. I think I was the youngest architect ever to be asked to do. It was a two-person show, Emilio Ambaz and us. And at that point, we had only like the Martha's Vineyard House, a pool house in Scarsdale. We had just won the Gedenk Bibliothek, the Berlin Library competition. And I wrote this manifesto called Anchoring, which is still in print, by the way. So that was a kind of uh, first written theoretical you know, kind of argument that I, I argued that architecture is bound to each situation. The site, you know, and the circumstance is unique and one shouldn't be carrying a signature from one site to the next. It should be about finding a meaning in the site. In that manifesto, there was also a chapter called Idea and Phenomena, which later became a retrospective show in 2002 at the Architecture Zentrum in Vienna. The title was Idea and Phenomena. I said, these are the two basic kind of theoretical foundations of you know our work here in the studio, and that is there's an idea that drives the design, and usually it's got something to do with the site and the circumstance of the program, but the real measure is the phenomena of being inside a building, and that means that the interior is more important than the exterior. My old professor, Herman Ponce, said a building should be more when you go in it than when you look at it. And I think, you know, kind of the notion of light, space, spatial experience, all of those are arguments in that, you know, kind of that period. I'm curious, you know, you grew up in a relatively uh, kind of an architecturally secluded part of the country, as did I. And I, you know, I, I really craved what wasn't readily available. I'm wondering if you grew up in a artistic household. Were your parents creative? My father was a super creative man. He was in an art program in Ellensburg College when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and he enlisted and became a paratrooper. But he could also, you know, always draw. There were little drawings all around. And my brother and I were encouraged, my mom and dad, they were blue collar, you know, working people, but they you know, cared about art and always encouraged us to draw and paint. And so we both won drawing contests in grade school, like the poster contest. In the Kitsap County Fair, I got blue ribbons for my oil paintings. You know, that's where they <laughs> measured the size of cows and pigs, the yeah. county fair. But they had a section for art. And I mean, you know, when you're like six, seven years old and you get a blue ribbon for your oil painting, it's very encouraging, you know, in terms of what you're going to do. And, you know, it's not, was not a cultural rich upbringing, but it was, there was some, some inspirational encouragement there that I think kept me going and in terms of what I wanted to do. So when did you switch from oil to watercolors? <laughs> I did watercolors back then. My mother saved all that. They died. My mom died in 2010 and my dad died in 2014. He was 94 years, two months and 23 days. And his mind was totally there right up until the last week. Anyway, we still have the house and the beach cabin in Manchester, Washington. And out there is a collection of watercolors, oil paintings from <laughs> the 60s, 1960, 61, wow. 62. So my mom saved it all, so it's kind of still there in a little archive. That was, I think, 
you know, in a certain sense, a person has something in them already, you know, an urge to make things and to create. With a little bit of encouragement, you do it, you know, and it, I don't think it has to be, you don't need to be born in the blue blood or you don't need to go to the GSD. Speaking of the GSD. <laughs> They're not going to be happy to hear no. this podcast. Well, no, I'm actually, I'm <laughs> curious about your decision before accepting the, the position at Khan's uh, office. What was it about the, the schools that just didn't resonate with you back then? that made you decide not to attend? Well, and each one had a certain, you know, kind of, each one had a problem for me. I mean, I, Yale was the atmosphere. I, I was interested. I visited, you know, of course, Rudolph's building. And, and then I visited the studio of Warren Plattner. I, I mean, I spent some time thinking about this. And at MIT, I remember I had this interview with a guy by the name of Julian Beinhardt, who was to me, very off-putting. I mean, I bless his soul if he's gone. I don't know. So, and then I, I had a meeting with Polshek, who was the dean of Columbia, and I, w I was a very headstrong person. I said, look, you know, I'm a registered architect. I'm coming back to school to get a master's degree, but I want to do it the way I want to do it. I want to, I, I want to shape what I'm going to do here. He says, well, you you can't do that. This is a master of science program. You have to follow our rules and blah 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 blah. And I, you know, it's so expensive. You know, any one of them, it's super expensive. And I thought, you know, I don't really need this. I'm going to do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I had some money saved up because I'd been working, you know, in San Francisco for years because it was already 1973. I passed my registration in the first go and I got it. I was a registered architect in 1974. What was it that made you want to get a graduate degree at that point? Look, I'm a perpetual student. That's why I love to teach. <laughs> you know, I think you learn every day. I, I'm excited about our studio. Right now, we're teaching uh, with my wife, Demetra Zacharelia. We're teaching a class called The Architectonics of Music, which I've been teaching at Columbia for about six years. A studio where we study the, you know, sort of inspiration of music and architecture. And I think it's really an experimental studio. And it, it's very exciting how the different students Students take a different approach. So why did I want to go to graduate? Because I've already, I spent my life in, I mean, I, I love education. I think it's, you know, I think it's very important to keep stimulating the mind to think about the unknown. Practice can wear you down. You know, it can flatten your brain, you know, just uh, mm -hmm. I have right on my desk right now, lists of VE items, right? <laughs> As we all do. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You get a headache. I mean, why don't you just raise the budget? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stephen, when I was in architecture school uh, a few years ago now, Anchoring was the first book that spoke to me as a, as a, as a young student. And um, my professor uh, at the time was John Nastasi, who's now head of the uh, Stevens Product Architecture Lab. And he spoke very much in the same way. Um, in fact, he guided us t to your material because he's, he really spoke at length about the importance of narrative and the site and connecting the building to the site. And that was the reason why I brought up the Martha's Vineyard House. And, and I think about the Martha's Vineyard House and your use of and the reference of Moby Dick and the past tribes. And I think about the Stretto House and I think about St. Ignatius. They all really fuse with this very lovely narrative as well as speaking to the materiality and nature of the site and light. And could you talk a little bit about, you know, how do you feel about, is narrative play an important party for you? I say every project, and we still work this way, every project, that's why I use it when I want to kind of, what's the simplest way to say what we're doing? It's the bridge between idea and phenomena. First, there's an idea that drives the design, and it needs to be related to each 
site and circumstance, and it needs to be something you can clearly state. So for the Chapel of St. Ignatius, you know, one of the things about the, the Jesuit tradition is the light that gives direction should come from above. So that I, I was reading a sentence like that, and I thought about the whole thing should be about light. So I said seven bottles of light in a stone box would be the concept. See, you see narrative, but I say there's the concept that drives the design. Sure, it's a story. But the story actually is how I've been able to achieve some pretty interesting buildings because, you know, the process of trying to build a building, everybody's trying to take things out. And in that case of Chapel of St. Ignatius, the uh, physical planning department said, okay, it's over budget. Let's take out three of the bottles. You know, we don't need them. And the campus ministry said, absolutely not. Stephen's concept is seven bottles of light. There are seven days in the week. This is a central idea. And they supported me. And, you know, what's really exciting is today, you know, this Easter is coming up this weekend, and it's 20 years. It opened 20 years ago, 1997. They're having some kind of a celebration in May, but it was Easter. There was another thing that happened, and that was Father Sullivan, the contractor, comes with all these schedules and, you know, his, you know, kind of charts and things like this about building the building. And Father Sullivan pushed it across the table, and he said, it shall open on Easter. (laughs) (laughs) The voice from above. Yeah, they built it in 11 months, you know, and that's the way it should be. You have a great client, and the contractor was good, too, you know, and the building looks great. I was just there, like, last week. I got an award as an alumni award from the University of Washington, so I was back to see the chapel again. It was great. Can I ask you just one quick question or follow up on that? Do you remember what the light was like in Washington where you lived? I, I think about your work and I think about the light and I think of the light in the Pacific Northwest being so different atmospherically. Absolutely. Totally. It's like Scandinavia. It's the same in, you know, in, in Norway. Basically, in the summertime, the sun is up until 10 o'clock at night. You know, it's the, the solstice is fantastic. You know, to be on the 21st of June on the beach in Manchester is great. The sun rises at like four o'clock in the morning. But in the wintertime, you know, it's dark at four o'clock and the sun doesn't come up until nine. You know. But that horizontal sun when it's in the winter is spectacular. Those long shadows that it throws. You know, where I grew up is right on the water, Puget Sound, Yukon Harbor. From the cabin, you can look straight across and see Seattle and Blake Island. So it wasn't just the light. It was this huge sheet of water that would reflect the rising sun and you could trace the movement of the sun from winter to the summer rise. It was my father and I, the first house I built, they lived in for 25 years. And we pointed the house to the equinox and I put a slot in the fireplace. So autumn equinox or on spring equinox, we could, you know, kind of trace the rising sun right in that slot that's you know, kind of cast into the concrete of the fireplace. I mean, the light and the change of the season in the Pacific Northwest is very spectacular. So I spent some time living in Portland in the Pacific Northwest, and another architect I spoke with out there one time described the Pacific Northwest being about this luminous sky, but then this darker ground plane because the growth is so dense, right? Like, how does that compare to other places where you've lived and where you've worked? No, it's special. It has, it definitely has a deep you know, character. But I mean, I've I've built in Helsinki and in Norway and in Denmark, and there are similar things in Scandinavia. There is a similar condition of the, you know, the the chiaroscuro light, the twilight in the summer, where, you know, like when you're building in Bogota, when the sun goes down, it's like it just dropped, somebody dropped a ball (laughs) into the ocean. You know, there's no twilight. But in Helsinki or Norway or Seattle, there's this incredible long, hours of twilight where the sky just glows and you know you have this 
chiaroscuro feeling, of almost a spiritual feeling of the night approaching, and it's spectacular. In the summertime, it's like you want to be outside to see that glowing kind of after-the-sunset light that goes on for hours. It's incredible. One of the times you caught my, my ear early as a lecturer, I think I, I heard you say that one of the relationships you see with architecture is that on the East, it tends to be a little more intellectual, and on the West Coast or the West of the United States, architecture tends to happen more from the wrist down. Does that sound like a familiar thing that you might have said? A long time ago when I was lecturing at SciArc, probably. Maybe. I'm really curious in how you sort of see that comparison between the West Coast sort of frame of mind. And then now, of course, you work all over the globe. So how, you know, how in other parts of the world, in Asia, for example, how do you start to bring that sort of that local anchoring into the project? Right. I mean, I, I've never set out to be so global. I mean, it was something that that happened. I was invited, you know, like one of your questions was about in China. Well, I'd never even been to China and Arata Izasaki invited us to do this project in Nanjing for a, a little museum. It was part of an architectural ex exhibition of several buildings to be built. And he did one and Satsas, bless his soul, did another one. And Sana did one. I think it was, was it ever realized? I can't remember. But anyway, that was my first project. And when I, you know, when I went there, I was kind of very, very, you know, sort of dedicated to try to study Chinese watercolors and parallel perspective and this sort of aspect of space that was in these drawings, because this is an art museum, art and architecture at the time, but then it just became contemporary art. And that became the kind of origin sketches and drawings and the idea for the project. And then, you know, because we were there, we were invited to do this project in Beijing. And uh, I mean, just Somehow one invitation led to another, and there was a lot of press over these buildings. And we, you know, at a certain moment, I had, I don't know, 25 people in the Beijing office. Now there's just sort of nine, ten, and we were building, you know, these huge projects. And it was not something I was chasing after. It was something, they were invitations. And uh, it was an enormously interesting time. And I, I think you had to be there. I mean, it was the Olympics were happening, right? 2008. So this, I started in 2002 and everybody wanted to prove to the world that they had modern architecture culture. And there wasn't any before that. There was a terrible kind of Russian prefab housing and then some kind of really bad Pomo, kind of 1980s, not much. And China was opening up and, you know, everything was kind of changing very, very fast. And the Olympics were coming, and I think you, you just saw in all over the country a kind of atmosphere of optimism for the new. Let's make it the newest we can make it. And this horizontal skyscraper project from Wangxi and Shenzhen happened at that time, too. That was a competition. And the director of that huge housing company, he sat at my presentation. I mean, I, I, I was kind of really out there with this project. I said, okay, it's by the sea, you know, there could be floods. Let's just lift the whole thing off the ground, you know, mm -hmm. like 20 meters up in the air. And it was almost like, yeah, we weren't going to win this. Well, and then he said, I love the shape. I want this project. And it was like, what? <laughs> Me, I had to pinch myself. And there was, a, there was an engineer there at the dinner after we won. And he said, I thought, oh God, am I, I'm going to have trusses all over this thing to get these spans. And he said, no, we can do this without trusses. And that is the first cable stay bridge construction technology building of that type in history. It's 50 meter spans and inside of these sheaths that go through the inner part of the building, there's these cable stay, bridge technology. There's a book on the building that shows the structure, but that could only be done at a time where, you know, 
the sky is the limit. And that's everybody in China. That was their attitude. It was amazing. They could also build very economically, right? And they could do anything. And, and that, that, that building was built incredibly quickly. I mean, we won the competition and they broke ground inside of six months. Wow. This is a building 20 meters off the ground. It's a huge, it's 1.2 million square feet off the ground. There's a whole section under the ground also. But when I went to the building department to get the building permit, okay, I had to present it and kind of represent it in a long presentation to a lot of people. It's very sophisticated in Shenzhen. The building department was super sophisticated with all the highest technology. And I thought there's going to be problems or whatever. Within 10 days, they issued the building permit for this building. Can you imagine that? I'm building in Washington, D.C. right now, and I've presented 65 times. <laughs> you know, it's like night and day. Yeah. It was a great, I, I, I say luck. I, I was lucky. I was at the right place at the right time doing the right thing. That's what my old friend, the artist Walter Di Maria, said to me. You know, we were pretty close. We did some collaborations together. He said, Stephen, there are three things. You need to be in the right place at the right time with the right idea. That's what happened. Yeah, it was a strange, wonderful moment. I think it's past, you know. In China, it is. Well, right. It's changing a little bit now. But when the the leader of China said, no more weird buildings, that was a little Trumpish, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now they look better than we do. I'm happy to have some more new work in China because when we build in China, it's super green. All geothermal heating and cooling, all the maximum solar energy, you know, kind of almost net zero type building that we're doing in China. And I think America is in a kind of unfortunate moment in terms of our leadership. It's, it's a very sad thing trying to undo all the progress that we've made over the years, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's true. We have to fight it. Right. What do you think it is that drives Chinese architecture to be so much more green than besides besides the leadership? Do you think it's the uh... common sense? Yeah, it's just common sense. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I mean, you know, fossil fuels—they need to stay in the ground. You yeah. know, when you when you try to cut the air in Beijing, it's so thick you would just choke on it. You know, so it has to change. You know, it all has to change, and it will change. It's going to change, and China's going to lead the way now, not America for a while. It's not the correct moment for America. It shouldn't be. We should be leading. We have the technology, the possibility of people like Elon Musk that have the drive and, the, and, 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 and sort of the desire, but now we have blockage at the top, ignorance at the top. That's the saddest thing you can have, you know what I mean? But China, I think, will lead right now. Look, the time that I worked there, they connected 42 cities with high-speed 200-mile-an-hour right. trains. Yeah, have you ever ridden on Amtrak to Washington, D.C.? Going to fall off the track on the way down there. <laughs> oh, boy. Elon Musk to the rescue. <laughs> That's right. Right. So where does that put U.S. architects? Where do you see us, our profession, and youngsters coming up in the schools right now? Like, where do you see us going? No, I don't think architecture is nationalistic. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I feel that the time of nationalism should have receded. We should be thinking about the earth as a single, you know, sort of viable, life-giving planet. And we need to think about our practices that way. And uh, despite this sort of kind of medieval setback that we're in, in terms of leadership, I think, continue. I mean, I'm building, I'm realizing the Maggie's Cancer Care Center in London. It mm -hmm. just topped out. I'm very excited. It'll be opening in December. It's right in the heart of the oldest part of London. That was a real battle to get through all the planning departments and things like that. But this will be like a little beacon for people with terminal cancer for to come for care. And it's sited right near the oldest 
hospital, St. Bart's Hospital, the oldest hospital in the United Kingdom. And I think, yeah, I think that's a kind of project that international, you know, I think I, I just read that Benedito Mirala Studio is doing one in, in Spain now. So, you know, I think those kinds of projects are very interesting. I'm doing a project in Malawi, a library, a 60,000 square foot library. Malawi, Africa is the poorest country on earth. People make less than a dollar a day average. I met the president, Peter Matheson, and he makes $42,000 a year. That president of Malawi. Anyway, it's a really interesting place. It hasn't been spoiled like other African countries, but I have this client who wants to do, you know, he's done this thing called the Miracle of Africa Foundation, which is an amazing thing. It's a client that I built a house for in Korea for the Dayang Shipping Company. That's online on a, on a Vimeo, which opened in 2012. And he had this gigantic international global shipping company, and he decided to sell it, the whole company. And he's like 68 years old and put all of his energy into what he formed as the Miracle of Africa Foundation. He's already built a hospital. They have 150 beds and doctors and dormitories. And this library will be the first building in a campus that he wants to build. Let's say that two main issues face us today, climate change and global warming and everything that ignorance at the top. Okay. But the second one is income inequality and it's a global problem. It's a global problem. So I'm so happy to be given this opportunity to make this library, which gives education back, you know, to the poorest country, you know, the possibility of, uh, you know, and it's coming from a wealthy man in Seoul, Korea. So this is a kind of, I think, you know, when you say West coast, East coast, this country, that country, I think that we should think of ourselves as a globe and celebrate the possibility of doing things that are global in terms of their optimism for the future. And think about, you know, the children today and what they're going to inherit. Architecture is very important. Yeah. And I think it's, uplifting. I love the Maggie Centers because they say, you know, formed by Charles Jenks, you know, the man who wrote the language of postmodern architecture, who in that book says that architecture has no social, you know, ability to change anything. Guess what? He went 360 degrees on that idea because the Maggie Centers believe that architecture is an uplifting force. It has the potential for social uplifting you know, kind of character and the space and light contribute to a person's health and their well-being. I think that this is an interesting, you know, kind of condition where you, you, you think about what happened to the history of architecture. Modern architecture had this incredible mission of, you know, hope for the future. And postmodernism was so cynical and saying that there was no you know, whatever. And then deconstructivism was kind of also slightly cynical, self-serving. But now we're clear of all those things. We're in a new phase, and I think the Maggie Centers represent something really interesting because there were Charles Jenks. I just saw him in London. (laughs) He's still there, but he knows that this is a reversal on a real theoretical moment from the 70s that he's now, you know, really behind this important force of the Maggie Centers. And I think that his book is called The Architecture of Hope that tells about the Maggie Centers. So that's really exciting to be working on, you know, both of those projects. And then also the Queens Library is topped out and it's going to open our little tiny library in Queens here in New York. I'm very (laughs) proud of that. Queens Community Library. So it sits right, you know, kind of on the waterfront and in back of it are all these faceless glass condominiums, endless monetary, you know, kind of towers. So you touched a little bit on education. And one of the things I'm curious about, do you find that there's still room 
with having very different schools of thought around and, and not literally and, and figuratively schools of thought in architecture programs across the across the globe about the direction of the profession you think that there's a vitality in that or do you think in some ways there are some that are so off on another plane that you know it would it's actually more damaging to the profession and to the to the vitality and the, and the growth of the, the global community I think that architect for me architecture is an art and the possibility to make an inspiring building for some public good that gives public space is like a gift you give to future generations. And I think, you know, for me, that's the importance. The profession, I don't know what happened to the profession. I think it became uh, corporate. And the values, they're not the values about, you know, the idea driving the design that I believe in or the inspiring inner space and light. I think that's super important. And the notion of material detail, what I call the haptic realm, how architecture, like when you go to Kareli's Stampelia Foundation of Carlos Scarpa, that little garden in the back is so powerful. It speaks to you. And it's a little, it's very small, but then the details and the materials, you know, when you when you stand in the courtyard of, of the Salk Institute, it's an incredible connection to the Pacific Ocean and that strip of water that when the sun sets, it sets also on that strip of water, so the sunlight comes all the way back into the plaza. I mean, it's an incredible thing. You know, that's not happening. If you call it a profession, I think that this is a, we're in a moment, which is the same kind of moment of income inequality. You know, it's a, there's an interesting article in today's New York Times in the business section about corporate greed and the GSD uh, business school, uh, the Harvard Business School. I think that's kind of where we are today. And I think that's where a lot of architects, when they graduate, they shouldn't go into these big corporate firms. They need to find a, a place where people are doing smaller work so they can get back to the core values of architecture. Amen. Taliesin is still open, by the way. <laughs> You can still go there. And Aaron Betsky is trying to run a school there. I think that's pretty interesting. I mean, you know, and just being able to visit there and to see the light and the space and the detail and that sort of optimism that Frank Lloyd Wright had right up to the end. That's the America I like. I mean, I think that's pretty interesting. I, I mean, I also am an urbanist, so I love the Raymond Hood America, the Rockefeller Center America, where you don't just build, you know, kind of as maximizing glass boxes as high as you could. You build a public space with it. I mean, the Channel Gardens and, and the ice skating ring and the public space that's at the center of Rockefeller Center, you know, the Raymond Hood, you know, kind of masterwork. That's urbanism. That's what we should be thinking about and aiming towards. Not just saying yes to these clients that really are just trying to maximize their money, you know, maximize their portfolios. Could you talk a little bit about the Stephen Myron Hall Foundation? This is a foundation I started as the 32BNY, which is a magazine we, when we were moving, I was going to five times a year back and forth to China with the with the Beijing office, and there was a publisher over there that was interested in us doing a magazine. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but you can Google it. It's still online, 32BNY. There were, I don't know, 15 issues. And then we couldn't distribute it because there's not enough bookstores. So we turned it into a, a video polemic. And there's still, if you go online, you'll see that. And at that time, I was beginning to think about having a gallery up in Rhinebeck and showing how architecture, music, poetry, and art are related. So it was about seven years ago, we started T-Space, and now we're 
We have a, this is our seventh year. We, we're showing Neil Denari opening on the 27th of May. Uh, the openings are always on a Saturday afternoon, and we always have a piece of music commissioned and a poet, a poem, usually commissioned, and the artwork. And in this case, it'll be Neil Denari's architecture. And we try to have one architecture show and two in sculpture and, and, and the arts painting. So it's something that, you know, has been going on. And so we just, you know, under that foundation name, we're kind of expanding the idea of it. Now we're going to have an internship. We acquired another piece of land for dirt cheap because we downzoned it from five suburban tract houses that were going to ruin the forest. We recombined it into a 30-acre natural preserve. So, you know, it's just this foundation is going to take over my archive and things like that. But it's something, I wanted to do something that there was an organization that, you know, could maybe, we've been getting some donations and some funding from the community in Rhinebeck, so it could kind of last and kind of work on its own. That's that's the idea. I mean, it's just beginning. It's just, but it was basically, it started as a magazine, 32BNY, and that's how we made the 5013C. And uh, it's going on now quite well, and we get good attendance. Well, I'll send you the the recent catalog. You're actually, uh, you're accepting applications right now, correct? Right, for the little intern. This is our first year. We're going to do a little internship, like a summer studio. and uh, A fellowship. Call it a fellowship, because intern is such a nasty word in our in our. No, profession. no, it's not an internship. <laughs> no, no, you do your own project. No, no, yeah. it's like a studio. You yeah. make your own architecture, and we criticize it. In other words, yeah, it's like a small school, but it's only five weeks. So we're, it's an experiment this time, and but it's a you know it's a great site and uh, we have a big a nice lake for swimming, <laughs> 29 <laughs> acre lake, the highest lake in Dutchess County, which has this beautiful water you can almost drink it. It's so pure. So that's also a nice uh, kind of feature of the of the site to be able to go swimming. And uh, yeah, it's a it's it'll be an interesting summer this way because now we ha- also have some new facilities to work with. And I enjoy teaching. You know, I mean. I teach one term a year now at Columbia. I'm tenured there since 1989 or something. And uh, it's another, you know, kind of outlet to be able to, to give back in terms of your know, teaching. And I think that's something I, Demetra loves to do. And some other, Christian Christoph Kumpisch, who's running first year at Columbia, is also going to be teaching with us. And some other guest critics will be coming. So, Stephen, one of my uh, coworkers, Carrie Bly, we're discussing today and she's going to harvard gsd and one of the questions that uh, we kind of uh, formulated was your process as i understand it seemingly starts out from a, a basically from a watercolor and we were curious about your process going forward and how you translate that into your office and how do they take that that concept and what you're thinking about and then turn it into form and 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 how are you testing those assumptions that and those those ideas in your process Wow, that's a, a one-hour film. You know, you, you come here and I'll I'll take you through the whole process. I mean, yeah, it's not the watercolor; it's the idea that's driving the design. Right. It could be a, it could be just charcoal with no water. <laughs> I, I think that I I I gave a lecture called "Drawing as Thought." When you draw, you're also thinking. And for me, to find a concept, you need to think of words. You need to write words, but you need to draw space and think of geometry. So drawing is thought. So that's why I use these five by seven pads because I can write the words like I'm looking at one now that's the diagram for this master plan for the Malawi campus where the library is on one side and I have science, humanities, the mind, and the body. So there are four buildings. The mind is the library building. The body is an athletics 
a center around a dormitory. There's a science building on the other axis and humanities and arts building on the lower axis. But on that five by seven pad, I have these drawings, these color drawings of these buildings that are around this sort of circular quadrangle pool. But then I also have these four words. So there's a concept, you know, unifying what the center of this campus would be. But then there's also form and color. So, yeah. And why did I use 5 by 7 Because you can get on an airplane and flip the tray down and work on it. You can stick it in your pocket. And I've been doing that since 1979. And I have oh, I have them over my head right now. There's a rack that I could show you or you can get a photograph of this. But there's over 30,000 watercolors. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> All the buildings we ever did, you can trace their you know, kind of birth in a series of conceptual sketches and they changed, you know, rejected things. And and it's kind of a, yeah, it's a mental library of thought and form in a kind of encapsulated way. And I, I, I really love doing it. And also when the iPhone was invented, that's when it became super efficient because I could snap the image and simultaneously send it to four people in Beijing and two people in New York in one click. And they would all be working on the same concept. And because with the iPhone, you know, the way you can snap an image and then you can enlarge, no matter what I wrote on there, how small the text was or whatever, they can enlarge it in their screen and check it out and understand it. So I can make that watercolor on the plane in, you know, sort of a few minutes and snap it and send it. And suddenly like two sides of the earth and six people are working on this. So that's that's another uh, reality is it, it's supercharged in terms of when the iPhone came. What year did the iPhone start? 2007. I'm a tech geek. Yeah, 10 years ago. <laughs> so exactly then is when, you know, it became more powerful than I imagined. It's super efficient, you know, in terms of trying to communicate things over, you know, over a two-office situation. So earlier when we were talking, you talked about going to school with um, Remco House and Zaha Hadid. And, and um, we've just, you know, it's been a year since Zaha's passing. You know, all of your styles are so very different. We were going to start an office together. That's how close we were. I have the last photographs of Zaha. She came to my apartment at 32 Morton Street and brought a little Issy Miyake dress for my daughter. You know, she was there holding up the dress, and I have these photographs. And Tom Main came that evening, too. And uh, that was the 16th of March last year. And then she went to Florida and got sick and went into the hospital. And that was the end. So I have the last photographs of her. I mean, I have, you know, we were very close. We would, she would send me, we would text each other every two weeks at least. And, you know, we were going to start an office together back in London because we were very close from the studio. And it was the peak competition, if you remember. And and I mm-hmm. said, okay, it's going to be called Hall Hadid. No, Hadid Hall. No, <laughs> Hall Hadid. No. I said, you just do it. Okay, just do it. You know, do it on your own. <laughs> she won. You know, I mean, it was a beautiful set of paintings. Yeah, historic moment. Izusaki was on the jury. He thought it was Oma. He thought the project was Oma. Nobody knew Zaha. I mean, I knew her. I mean, so yeah. So I, you know, I was kind of there when she was discovered. You know. And uh, before she was Zaha and uh, kind of all along the way, every bit of the way. And she followed. I mean, she came, you know, back in the old days when we didn't have much, she came to the mock-up of the Kiasma Museum and walked in and she's complaining she had to bend over to go in the door and all this. And I came to her Vitra Firehouse opening. You know, back in the old days, I mean, we each had like one building and that was it. So we, we would visit, you know, our openings. But then, you know, we both became more busy and over the years, but we stayed in touch always, you know, it was a, 
great loss. She's a, I mean, for me, okay, she is the real thing. That's the real thing. You talk about, there's no way they can carry on Zaha. They can keep that name and produce something, but it won't be Zaha. Because when she, you know, made a project, she made it all the way through, you know, and uh, you can tell details, material. I mean, the Beecher Fire Station has amazing details, you know. And I think that last project that I think represents her total involvement is the one at Oxford. Have you seen that? I haven't been there yet. I don't know which one that is. The little Middle Eastern Library Annex, I think, in Oxford campus. Oxford is where James Sterling's dormitory is, right? Mm -hmm, I think so. That building has her total attention and detail and her originality. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Reflective tunnel. No, she was... The real thing in a way that yeah, other people could aspire to be. But I mean, she was a natural. Absolutely. I mean, so I feel like I have to ask now about the Pritzker. Did you know that whenever the Pritzker is being, you know, before it's awarded, there are hundreds of voices on Arconnect in the forums going, it's got to be Stephen Hall this year. I'm sure he's going to get it this year. No, I've, I've seen it. And my <laughs> wife is cool. She says, oh, you're, you know, you're leading. I said, it's okay. You know, <laughs> you know, and I mean, I, I really think it's fine. I mean, in a certain sense, it's better to be leading in those polls than it is to actually get the thing, right? It's the people's vote. That's a great attitude. Absolutely. <laughs> to me, it's like, it's a certain joy of appreciation for from where it counts. Obviously, to me, the jury doesn't really matter that much. They've gone political, basically. (laughs) I love the wonderful beginning, you know, like when Barragon makes his statement about architecture. I -hmm. I go back and read that. It's so, so, so strong. I think Louis Barragon received it in 1980. It was amazing. His statement about what... What is architecture? You know, it's so it's so powerful. You should read it again. It's fantastic. You know, and then when Caesar got it, you know, I was so happy. You know, he's such a great architect. But yeah, it's uh, it just goes on. I mean, it's not important really. I mean, it's a hotel chain, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's how we're referring to it from now on. No, in a certain sense, the AIA gold medal is also great. You know, I feel very, very proud of receiving that. And also another one that I'm really proud of is the Alvar Alto medal. We're going to have a reunion of medalists in the Maison Carie in Paris on the 15th of September. And, uh, you know, Alto designed the medal himself. I have it here in my office. It's a bronze kind of sculptural piece. And he got the first one. (laughs) (laughs) And designed his own medal. (laughs) Well, we, you know, if you want to talk about architecture awards, why don't we just make one up? Yeah. Yes. Arconnect, we've talked about doing that before. Just like Alto did. I mean, who gives the right for a hotel chain to start one up in deep pockets? (laughs) Well, it's your idea, so you're you're the first recipient. Before 1979, there wasn't any such award, right? Yep. Yep. First Arconnect award. Stephen Hall. <laughs> Not a bad idea. I'll make the bronze little uh, medallion. You design it. I know someone that can cast it. <laughs> and we'll give it to you. <laughs> That's a plan. You know, we'll model it after all of our altos. It's really beautiful. It comes in this little case, you know, this little, it's really, I'll show it to you. Yeah. If you want a picture of that, I can send it to you. Please do. That'd be great. Please do. Yeah. All right. Okay. I, this is so much fun, but I think, Ken, you have a couple, just two last quick questions, right? Yeah. And interestingly enough, the reason why I ask these questions, uh, Stephen, um, you familiar with Don Wall? Don Wall, he was a professor at NJIT and he was uh, Haydock's gentle inquisitor in Mask of Medusa. So Don, he 
talked about having uh, a studio where he would have students ask architects what books were they reading and design a space based around that book. So these two questions kind of were born out of Don's idea for a studio project. So uh, what are you reading and uh, what are you listening to these days? Well, I'm listening to Xenakis because I'm teaching the architectonics of music. So, mm-hmm. I mean, Xenakis is probably the one incredible bridge between um, music in its radical modern conceptual state and architecture because he worked for Le Corbusier, you know, for 10 years. And uh, right now we have 12 students and we're, we're, we cited the, build, the project in Greece, uh, in Patras, and uh, that's where Xenakis is from, Greece, of course. But the first half of their term, they had to base their work on one of his compositions. And I think, you know, one of them was Metastasis. You know the the piece Metastasis? That's a fantastic piece that he did at the same time that he was building the Brussels Pavilion with Le Corbusier. And he said when Brussels was coming out of the ground, he said, that's Metastasis taking form. And, you know, then there's another piece called Tetora. There's a piece called Persep. These are pieces of music that the students are working from to build their language that they take over then into actually making a work of architecture. So that's, you know, I've got here on my iPad all of these works. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, something like 25 works of Xenakis that I'm listening to, which is, yeah, difficult listening. And then, let's see, reading. I just was reading Silence, this book, Silence. My friend Tom Kundig gave me that book. You know, it's a kind of a popular by this woman who lives in Nora. I think she lives in the Hudson Valley. And I just finished reading The Gene by, I can't pronounce his name, The Indian Man. It's on the bestseller list. Oh, I have heard of this book, Silence, where the girl stops talking. Yeah, exactly. I heard someone talking about it on Fresh Air or something. And another book I think is great is called The Swerve by Mm -hmm. Greenblatt. It's Mm -hmm. about Lucretius and the invention (laughs) of modernity. That's a good read. The Swerve. Great. So those are three recent ones. Somebody gave me the book, The Secret Life of Trees. I'm also reading that. Do you typically have several books going at once? Yeah, because I have a house in my deck, and so I don't carry the books back and forth. So I have trees is sitting on my work table up in Rhinebeck, and then uh, Silence is sitting in New York. Thanks so much to Stephen Hall for sharing his story with us this week, and thanks to everyone out there listening especially those of you that have been listening from the beginning. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks again, and talk to you again in two weeks.